0: Hello and welcome to ITWL software Robotics Podcast. Uh, hello Helmut, thanks so much for joining us in uh, round two in the podcast. So it was was then since one year ago we did the first episode. So yeah, thank you once again for joining. Um, I would like to ask you in this time, how you would like to define yourself? You? Okay.
1: Um, well, thanks again, first of all, for inviting me back here. It was really a joy talking to you the first time. So thank you for inviting me back. Um, how would I define myself? Um, well, in this kind of times, it's really weird. <laughs> I would say, first and foremost, I I'm definitely um, well a father and a husband. I'm a family man. Uh, Research-wise, I still think I'm working in the field of morphological computation, but in the recent years, maybe I've geared more towards growing machines. So we are looking more and more into thinking about how can we make highly adaptive and robust systems, and we think growing is one of the crucial ingredients there.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, So I'm curious to ask you, because we didn't ask this question the first time, how was your childhood? Do you have any memories being interested in science or technology? Any memories about your childhood? Childhood.
1: Yes, um, so I grew up in a very small village in the Austrian mountains. Um, There were a lot of cows, (laughs) a lot of wood. I was playing a lot of outside. so I have a really nice childhood. Um, but regarding research, I was always interested in science fiction, in technology in in robots uh, in general. So I was always very curious. I like doing experiments. Um, mm-hmm. So I think I it's like a natural alignment with being a researcher now. I think it's my dream job what I'm doing.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. So maybe I'm curious to ask you, uh, of course, this one year, this is the definition of soft robotics. You do you have any something you change your perspective or your mind about soft robotics? Or maybe you think that's maybe the most important question we have to consider as a community after this one year? Is there something you change in your mind or perspective? Yes. Um,
1: well, like I said before, um in our research group, I think more and more we're looking into the interaction of the robot with the environment as a, as a crucial component and therefore growing as kind of response to environmental changes or desk changes or to facilitate learning. But mm-hmm. uh, soft robotics in general I think we are at a very crucial point. Um, it has been now quite some years where it has grown tremendously which it, it's great to see. Uh, new generations of young roboticists coming into the field, coming in with new ideas. Um, there's a lot of momentum going on uh, and it's an exciting field to be in. But um, I think we also have to think about maturing now as well. Um, so we are still trying to figure out as a field, I think, to make the connection to real world applications. where are some odd ones popping up? Um, I don't think we still have found like um, like a killer application, or um, where we have a lot of momentum into industry. Um, so we see that also when you reach out to people from industry, they are really interested in the field because they see the name soft robotics popping up uh, a lot. Uh, but often they don't know what it actually means. So there's a lot of education that is needed from our side. Outreach to to get into uh, well industry, uh, into into companies, let them know about what we can offer and find disconnection points. I think that's what's still missing.
0: I think that's interesting. Uh, I was looking, uh, I think, for soft robotics market. I can see that from the statistics, so that maybe it's um, there's a lot of application in Southeast Egypt, if I'm not mistaken. There's a lot of application for specifically for gripping the, for example, for gel object, or maybe for also, um, like, um, maybe, wearable technology for uh, worker safety. But I'm curious to ask you: Why do you think there's still this kind of maybe slow progress, or maybe why why do you think we don't focus so much in in, uh, in this perspective, or maybe what is missing? We mentioned that maybe education outreach.ing Do you think something maybe in when our um, research we have to consider what kind of research project we are handling? Um.
1: Well, I agree with you. There are a lot of interesting potential applications, right? And you you named a few and and there are many more um, where we immediately would see, okay, that would be a great application, but it hasn't been a real product yet. Besides only a few, right? Um, But coming back to your question, why this doesn't happen or hasn't happened yet? um, I think um, it might be a little bit early, but I try to push into this direction. I think it's important to mature as a field as well. Um, So Mm -hmm. people actually see it's not just a fluke uh, with a lot of excitement, but actually it's really beneficial for society, for end users, for stakeholders. Uh, It's not just a research topic. Um, And another component might be that like the original first generation of soft roboticists, uh, if I would call them like that, uh, these were or still are very visionary people, right? Uh, you really had to think outside of the box in order to think along soft robotics. You have to break through these kind of constraints of conventional robotics which were standing and still saying for decades um, that everything has to be rigid so you can control it precisely and so on. And I think uh, having this mindset is, is really good for blue sky research but now we need more people that have to come in who are actually interested in, in finding specific solutions for specific industry uh, problems, for Mm -hmm. example. And I think that's uh, maybe the role of the next generation as well. uh, To see, okay, how can we make this connection there?
0: That's interesting. So maybe the question here, what is maybe the area or direction you think is very promising, but as a community, maybe we disagree or still we don't give much attention to it at the moment? Um,
1: uh, I think, um, hmm. well, obviously, what I still think uh, is that the, the importance of the body especially in this soft robot is, is much more highlighted uh, with respect to control and sensing and I think while more and more people are coming to this understanding I think I mean in the soft robotics community I think there is a common intuitive understanding that this is important because if you work with soft materials you immediately see okay there's a lot of Richness in in these dynamics, and you can exploit them, right? You can fight them, or you can align with them and exploit them in in a positive way. So, I think there's still more work to do. Um, I I don't see anything that maybe we what we also need to do as a community is also to make an effort to reach out to people who are non roboticists, Um, for example. We have in the UK, we started a um, a UKRI um, strategic uh, research group or or strategic group on soft robotics. We specifically try to reach out to industry partners as well, but also to academics who might benefit from soft robotics. So this could be uh, maybe people in biology, uh, they want to test something um, where you need some kind of softness uh, actuated um, interface for tissues for example. Uh, it might be people in medicine who would be end users of soft robotics uh, products uh, but it also to include people who can contribute to the field right there are mathematics uh, researchers, um, people from control theory, uh, people from physics, uh, material science, chemistry, um, biology and many many more who don't know about the field, but actually have worked a lot in this direction and would be able to contribute a lot to software products in general. I think we are naturally very interdisciplinary, but we we have to more actively reach out to other people to make this happen.
0: That's a really an important point. Maybe we can maybe stress in this in the, in the end of the episode about how we can reach more people, even in general public, not also academicians. So I think that's also a very important aspect. But maybe i'm curious to go again for um, the missing pieces of, of maybe into soft robotic field and you mentioned that morphological computation is maybe the the superpower for soft robot uh, designing so if you can tell us why do you, do you think that morphological computation is so important for designing soft robots if anyone listening for the first time what's morphological computation and why it's very crucial for designing soft robots
1: so the The concept of morphological computation is based on observation in biological systems. Uh, What we can see is that the the morphology, the body, the dynamic properties of the body seems to play a very crucial role in the emergence of intelligent behavior in in nature. Mm -hmm. So It seems to be a very fundamental principle that evolution has found uh, that works really well, uh, especially in the physical interaction of an agent. Um, this could be an animal, it could be a plant. The fungi could go down to to a virus. Um, it seems to be the morphology is very very crucial. Um, and this is a little bit counterintuitive to what roboticists are usually think, because we, when we build robots, we think very much along the lines: okay, we have this body that shoot to a very specific task, like a robot arm in an assembly line, for example, and then we make a controller to control it to follow it along a specified trajectory. Now in order to make a good controller you need a good model which means you build the robot in such a way that you can easily model it. This means you have a rigid body uh, connected by Hidoc servers uh, so you can guarantee basically um, you follow the trajectory as close as possible. Now nature is, is very different and and why is it important to think what nature is doing? Because Basically, in almost any task, um, biological systems are outperforming state-of-the-art robots. Biological systems are more energy efficient, uh, more robust, more adaptive, uh, more versatile, um, more can learn faster. um, So, there are a lot of advantages that would be very useful for robots that should work autonomously, right? Uh, Not just in a factory line. Um, so it does make sense to look at how nature did that and then translate that into a robotics design. And, and mm-hmm. another way is also to think about it, if you look at conventional rigid robots, what we can see is they work really, really well if you have a controlled environment. Because that's also part of the equation. It's not just the body. You also have to guarantee everything in the environment can be modelled exactly. So the robot, the brain of the robot, can make decisions based on that. If you have noise, uncertainty, if you have changes in the environment, suddenly the systems completely break down. That's why we also don't see this kind of conventional robot out in the open. You don't have these robot arms in your kitchen or walking around with two legs in order to help you with your grocery. Um, Because the environment we live in is very very complex. But it seems biological systems don't have any issue with that at all. And if you look then at biological systems closer, uh, and you talk to biologists, uh, for them it's, it's obvious, because they see it on a daily basis, that the body plays a very crucial role. A lot of things that we see as an observer that seems to be intelligent is actually not controlled by the brain at all. So um, it makes sense to outsource some of this kind of intelligence to the body. And I mean, people call it morphological mutation, uh, some call it embodied intelligence, um, or uh, like Rod Pfeiffer um, or Josh Bongard. MIT um, in City calls it physical intelligence. Uh, Rob Wood from Harvard calls it mechanical side of artificial intelligence. There was a recent paper by Aslan Mirko Kovac who, who defined physical artificial intelligence. It's it's There are a lot of overlaps here. The, the main point is really that it does make sense to consider the morpholo- morphology, the dynamic properties of the body to make better machines um, in general and soft robotics as it turns out is exactly the means that you need in order to build an intelligent body because if you have a stiff body it's rather uninteresting within its dynamics and it's by design, right? But if you have a soft body suddenly you get all this richness, you get these really weird non-linear effects which seem to be negative on the first look if you look through the lens of a conventional roboticist because it makes them really hard to model Really hard to control, but on the other side, if you design them in the proper way, you can actually use this dynamics as something positive for the robot, and that's exactly what we're trying to do. Is we really try to understand how the body can help us, and um, this also means the body is not separated, right? It works together with the brain, so the control and the brain works together, and the environment as well, and all three together are actually helping to make the robot more energy efficient, more robust, more intelligent overall.
0: That's super interesting. Maybe I'm curious to ask you this question about, uh, as you uh, say that, how the soft bodies can be adapted to the environment. And that's something maybe I'm curious to ask you. Do you think when we have to consider maybe interesting uh, functionality out of certain morphology we have to design, how do you see the modeling approaches? Do you think which level we have to consider so that we can maybe understand? And I think one of the examples uh, you, you highlighted uh, um, before about uh, how the fish can swim upstream. And that's a question, how we can access this like beneficial geometric or structure and also the material nonlinearities and also the environment is also contributing to that. So how you can answer this question, if someone cares to ask you, how, how we can access this nonlinearities how we can figure out this beneficial? is this a modeling you have to consider or maybe experimental work how you figure out that this
1: yes i it's a really excellent question i think it's a mixture right um what we can see in nature are snapshots of evolution and they are really good systems right um they they are good enough so that the biological system can survive so we can look at those that's on one side you have bio inspiration work together with biologists and understand how the morphology plays a role in that. Um, that's one side. Um, another side is and that's derived from that is looking at a variety of biological systems and try to understand the underlying principles. Is there something that we can abstract um, or extract from biology and translate it into a robotics design? That's another way to do it. Another way is what you mentioned, you can model, right? You you can say, uh, you can use modeling tools um, where you try to explore this space. Uh, you can have not only optimization schemes like genetic algorithms and then look at the results and see, OK, that's interesting. Um, how can we explore this interaction, for example, or how can we optimize the body? How should it work together with the brain uh, in order to improve a certain cost function? Um, I think all these tools are, are interesting approaches and I think uh, it's important that m- many people work in solving this problem and all of those approaches can provide very interesting insights and contributions. So I don't think there will be or it's really hard to have a general theory that gives you well that's the functionality and then you translate it into the morphology. That's something very hard to do. Um, so my, I might be proven wrong in the future, but I think every bit of piece would help actually understand this a little bit better. And and another concept maybe would be also uh, to think about how can we build a robot not just to do what we we wanted to do, so like we do it currently, but can we build systems and where the morphology and the change of the morphology can play a role. That we can facilitate the emergence of solutions. So can we build, can we find properties that makes the system more adaptive? Um, So we don't know what the solution is, but we give the system the tools that it actually can come to its own solutions that it can converge onto solutions. So we expose it then to different kind of environments, for example, or different kind of tasks and then using its internal systems by adapting morphology, for example, through growth or just changing the morphology in other ways that it can actually converge onto something where it's doing better than without these changes and and Mm -hmm. therefore the, the interaction with the environment is very crucial here as well which usually is not done in robotics right but nature does that you you need this information from the environment so you know how to change actually and adapt
0: that's very interesting so maybe i'm curious to ask you this question also do you think maybe the how Uh, You figure out maybe the optimum material that can help you in figuring out what could be this morphology looks like. Because I think Professor Katia said in the podcast that some material can give her access to this beneficial nonlinearities, for example, hyper-elastic material. Do you think when you design this, maybe the design process, or what morphology looks like? Do you think a material is uh, maybe crucial here? How you select this material that could help you in figuring out the morphology?
1: Yes, absolutely. So um, material science, um, smart materials as a general term is, is something very very exciting from my point of view. Uh, and I think a lot of people in soft robotics would agree on, them, on, on that even if they don't uh, especially interest in morphological computation. I think having this kind of um, additional degree of freedom of design is something that is really exciting about soft robotics in general, right? The question is, of course, how can we do it in a useful way? Having more choice doesn't mean, um, we can find better solutions. It just means there's potentially more solutions in there. But still, we have to find a good design, right? And again, it, it, it could be, um, that we, we use this kind of, um, smartness in the materials. To interact better with the morphology in a passive way, in a very localized way, in a very distributed way. right? So you don't have this kind of central controller that tells which body part has to change how much now in stiffness but rather you have a, a skin for example and through the interaction with the environment some parts of the skin will get more mechanical stimulation than other ones and the underlying material locally will react to that by stiffening up or maybe the other way, softening up, right? whatever is needed. So you you can have this kind of distributed computation going on having this kind of smart materials. So the thinking about how to decide is, is at a different level. You don't design the shape but you design the dynamics. You design how it should respond to stimuli. So I think that it's a little bit of shift of how we think about machines um, which for me is really really exciting.
0: Mm-hmm. That's very interesting that you mentioned that design dynamics first. Maybe the question here about um, the first of robotic debate about morphological computation vs control design. I think before going that, if if you think that we can really figure out what could be the beneficial analogies, do you think that could be replace could replace the traditional control? If we look to the nature, we, we don't need most of I don't know if you can give example, they don't need this controller or maybe the brain and still they exhibit kind of maybe mechanical intelligence or body intelligence. Do you think that could also if we maybe figure out the the, the desired functionality without you using controller, do you think that could happen?
1: Yeah, so I think I I wouldn't say that the brain is not important in biological systems. Um a claim that I would make is that if we look as a complicated biological system as a human, there are a lot of layers, uh, historical layers, um, in the brain, in the body, that reflects the whole evolutionary process that we have gone through to come to this species. Um, so the, there's this kind of lizard brain which reacts more uh, than there's this high cognitive functions, and if you go down also in the body, right, there there are parts. Who are communicating upwards, but also downwards. And then there's also like pure mechanical kind of features in our body, like our dendons, which can serve as some kind of self-stabilizing mechanical systems. And they all work really nicely together. And this is another question that hasn't been answered yet. How, how can these different layers work together in, in a nice way? And even if you go down, uh, to like historically to very simple, um, biological systems there was a time where there was no brain available, even neurons weren't available at all and still these kind of um, biological systems were really really successful so of course they don't have cognitive functions that be a creative solution or problem solver like we are as humans right so I don't think without the brain is, is a good approach I think that would be too extreme I don't think a robot without the brain would be very useful I think the brain is really good at, for example, let's say an artificial brain, at, at planning, at memory storing, at uh, combining different kind of context information, uh, making then high level decisions, while the body on the other side is really good at physical interaction, at locomotion, at grasping, uh, when you do have to do something really, really fast. There is no need for the brain to interact every single millisecond as we usually do, uh, but it could be like every half a second or every second or only when the task is changing or if we have to increase the velocity of our running robot or stop it or move directions. Now coming back to your questions of control. Um, I think control, I mean I'm a control theorist myself, um, I, control is, is, is a really exciting field but it's a very old field as well. So it has very kind of strict rules how to think about control. It's a lot about modeling um, or deriving models, or estimating the model, and then therefore define a controller, uh, which is very closely connected to classical robotics, where you have a good model of the robot and the environment. So I think we we need to maybe get out of this box as well, and, and I've mentioned it in the d- debate as well. I think um, what, what we're trying to do currently in soft robotics is, is pushing the limits of control theory, um, but we should think really beyond this limitation, right? To think about completely new ways to control, um, which could include that we have this kind of levels of control uh, where mechanical part is one of it, which is completely passive, which is underactuated. Um, but this is where interesting stuff happens in the body on the morphological side. So I, I what I see is that we're going to have... Um, maybe a new set of control approaches that will be incorporated into the classical control theory uh, extended and then maybe in 10 years it's it's part of of classical control theory and you say right that's control control theory that's fine as well for me Mm -hmm. but i think the and i compare it a little bit like if you are a classical conventional roboticist you think about robot in a very specific way and soft robotics stepped out of that and said okay what about using completely different materials? Uh, robots don't have to look like an arm or a humanoid. It can be very very different. Um, and I would suggest we do the same for the control theory side. right? We step out of the constraint and say okay can we explore new ways uh, even bio-inspired ways do you think about control?
0: Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Maybe a question here from the control side: What could be you think the the crucial morphological computation prompter that can enhance this control design, or maybe pushing the limit? If you can tell us what could be maybe significant sides or maybe parameter in morphological computation that should be considered in control design. Um, so, so if
1: you really want to take advantage of um, of non-linearities in the morphology. Um, so what we talk, and, and I'm talking in control theoretic terms, you, you have a, a like a subset of your state space that is not directly controlled, so if you're under-actured system, um, so what you want to do is you want to design a system that exploits this dynamics. And, and some people are working on that. Um, um, Cosimo de la Santana, for example, works on that. Uh, um, then, people uh, in, in Cambridge and Control Group, for example, uh, they're working on, on kind of how to exploit this kind of underlying dynamics. Um, so that's one approach that you say, okay, I don't want to um, just have the controller to force the system in doing that, but rather use the dynamics in order to uh, exploit it in, in, a, in a positive way. So do you have the given dynamics by the morphology and then you try to learn how to, to use them. Uh, another way is there is um, like, and there's some work in classical control theory on, on that, but it hasn't been connected to soft robotics so much yet. Is when you control something with passive dynamics, you don't want to control it every single millisecond because you would destroy the eigen dynamics of the morphology. But rather, for example, if you would have a limit cycle for locomotion, you just every once in a while at, at the limit cycle, you give this additional push the energy, right? And to find out when is the right time to push and how much energy and how the signal should look like, this is something really interesting as well from the perspective of morphological computation. Um, and of course, this kind of orchestration that you have different kind of levels at different time um, levels, right? So you have this side which is uh, at millisecond, another one half a second, maybe another one is growing over a year, and you inter connect this kind of information in a controlled theoretical framework would be very interesting as well. And yes, of course, the connection with learning there involved as well.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm curious to skew this question. Um, you, you mentioned some example, I know, maybe example about like research labs start to think about this problem. But do you think the community overall is receptive about what you mentioned? Do you think, because maybe, let's be honest here, sometimes is if you want to think outside the box, sometimes it's challenging in terms of publication or, you know, it's risky sometimes to maybe consider ideas that maybe still not stable yet. So how do you see the reception of the community? And do you think that maybe there's maybe a challenging part that we don't understand that we need to publish? And that's why maybe we go for the the traditional way of, of using traditional control for controlling the robot and just manifesting that we can do this behavior or this functionality how do you mm. see this uh, question
1: yeah um so the i think the community is is very open minded uh, with respect to morphological navigation maybe they don't like the the term itself which which is fine and uh, like i said other people use different terms but i think everyone who works on on real soft robots has an intuitive feeling about the body seems to be doing something interesting, right? <laughs> and and um, and they also see that if you would force the body to do something very specific, you would destroy this kind of interesting part of it. Um, so I, in, when I talk to people, I, I my my feeling is um, they they think yes, it, it, it's good, um, but. Not all of them, obviously, will jump onto that because they have their own research priorities, which is completely fine. Um, and also, you, you you said it's it's a little bit risky, right? And I agree. It's it's um, it's it's really hard to grasp. It's very close to philosophy at the end. Or do what is life? Uh, what, what is control? What is information? What is computation? And uh, depending on your stage in your career, you don't always have the luxury to try to work on that for years and then publish something so um, I think everyone has to decide on their own if, if they're excited about that uh, and they want to look into that and um, want to know more about that I'm also happy to receive emails if, if people are interested in, in more discussions or if they think that's completely crazy what I'm talking about I'm, I'm happy to hear about that as well because again we, we all have this kind of our own biases right um, including myself and I'm I was eager to learn and understand where my blind spots are in order to get better obviously. Um, but um, what I see that there, there are more and more people especially in the younger generation who are really excited about these concepts um, and they, they want to do research in that direction which I think is really really cool and uh, and also of the more um, older people in the field um, seem to be inquiring about morphological mutation more than it used to be like, uh, maybe 10 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. I think people are converging on that, yes. Not everyone, but uh, I think there's a subgroup and I think it's an important part of it. I mean, yeah. I, it's it's also not that I invented this concept, right? There have been very big names before me who were like uh, like Rolf Pfeiffer, for example, um, or Gigi Lailasky, um Fumi Aida, I mean, there are many people who... Or Josh Bonger, obviously. There are so many people working in, in this... In, who did a lot of work, uh, really, really exciting work that inspired myself um, and they, they already paved the way and convinced so many people before me so it's much easier for me to talk about this topic than it used to be like 50 years ago.
0: So maybe... I- maybe a question here about what is the limitation or challenges for more physical computation? Maybe in terms of the computation, because I think one of uh, maybe challenges of robotics may be modeling and simulation, the computation power. And sometimes the question is how we can figure out the interesting parts of dynamics that we have to model or simulate. And how do you see this limitation or challenges in terms of the computation and simulation as well, and how we can figure out this is, could be the interesting part that I have to uh, simulate or consider dynamics instead of considering the whole body.
1: Yes. Um, so there are different ways to look at that. Um, so on a very high and abstract level, um, what, what, we, what we've what seen is in order to have something interesting going on in your body, first of all, you don't, and I mentioned it before, you don't want to control every single degree of freedom in this body, which is almost always decays in a soft body, right? Uh, because there's this kind of non-linear effects and then some kind of degrees of freedom uh, which are not directly controlled, which makes it interesting for morphological computation. The, the problem is to identify, I think that what you're, tr- what, you, what you're asking is to identify what are the interesting dynamics and, and how can we capture them with simulation and find them out. Um, and I mean, it's a little bit depending on the task, right? Obviously, not, it, it's important to say that not every nonlinear complex dynamic is, is good, right? It has to be beneficial in, in a certain context. But if you, if you think about classical nonlinear dynamics, like, um, um, or properties, let's say, like hysteresis, which usually you want to avoid, uh, this could be actually, if you if you look it from the viewpoint of morphological recommendation, they say this could be actually beneficial, right? Because you get for free this kind of information where you're coming from, because you take a different kind of trajectory if you go from left to right than from right to left. So this could be used, for example, in a locomotion robot. So maybe your your swing phase is a different one when you're retracting your leg. Uh, so. In the material itself you can use this as a sensor, for example. If you have bifurcation, uh, again, this is something which is um, usually you try to stay away from that in a classical robot, Um, but it could be beneficial. You have the same system, dynamical system, where you can control with one parameter the change of the behavior of, of these dynamical equations. Right? You can say you have a locomotion, like a limit cycle, And then you change one mechanical parameter for example and then suddenly without changing anything else you actually switch over into an an equilibrium point which could be a reaching movement so you you can see there's still some kind of control which changes this parameter but it's a one-dimensional control and the rest is done by the dynamics Um, so you can think about this kind of ways and i i I always consider morphological mutation as a new way to think about the problems that we have in robotics or we try to tackle in robotics by offering new ways of finding solutions like soft robotics did with rigid robotics, right? There's okay, we expand the possibilities and think about okay, maybe it's not that bad having nonlinear dynamics, but it can potentially beneficial and then there's another level and this goes more into like physical reservoir computing computing what what we do for example, um, Koen Nakashima for example, as well in Tokyo, where we look at the the body itself, the dynamics that we don't control them, we take whatever we have and exploit these dynamics as a computational resource and then we go more into this kind of computational side where we really do computation. This could be really abstract computation, it could be controller, it could be a sensor and then if you think along these lines you could say well what about having an adaptive sensor, right? So you have a dynamical system and then you translate that into a mechanical structure which means you can adapt the sensing frequency, the resonance frequency, by changing for example one part of the mechanical structure. And this is something for example insects are doing right, with their antennas. So they have for example a frequency for mating and for um, predators which are different because predators are much bigger so they they can switch by that using the same neurons on the other side it's just the mechanical side switching in one of these two modes so you don't have to do a lot you just have one parameter to switch between a or b and and you're done i'm not sure if that answered your question
0: <laughs> yeah that's very interesting i think there are all of question here but maybe i'm curious to ask you since we now focus on using multi-material for designing soft actuator, for example, we're getting this maybe interesting deformation. How do you see morphosal computation can handle designing multi-material? Is it something maybe, I'm not sure it's maybe related to topology optimization in that case, how you can make multi-material optimization so that you can figure out how shape looks like at the end of the day?
1: Yeah, I think optimization of, of material Properties or material components uh, of arrangements. Um, I think these are all tools that can help to embody the, the morphological computation concept. The same with simulation, as I mentioned before, simulation, right? Uh, these are all ways to explore the space and find good morphological structures that are useful. Um, and they're all interconnected. Um, yeah, they're definitely useful.
0: Yeah, yeah. So maybe I'm curious to ask you, if there's any maybe research line besides computational uh, uh, power, do you think that's something we have to focus on in the, in the in this research line? So, yes, I, I think
1: what... Um, I mean, I wouldn't say we have to focus on that. I, I think um, there are a lot of interesting uh, research questions in the field. Um, So, and this depends a little bit on what people are good at, right? And that's why, I also said, we need to include more people in general, the soft robotics um, that have, which are not roboticists. So obviously, I I think the the control part, working together with the morphology, that's something that's really interesting. Um, Another part is, can we find basic building blocks to make more complex systems? So if you say, well, this is this little module who is doing something interesting, but not too interesting, but then you can combine it and build it up to something more complex, like a little bit like logic gates, right? A logic gate is very simple itself, but then you can build a computer out of that. Um, so maybe yeah. uh, I'm, I'm not trying to think about digital kind of modules, but rather analog ones like filters or, or uh, dynamical systems. Uh, and then you can put them together and therefore design a robot for example. Um, I'm also very interested in understanding how the body is interacting with the environment and how can it changes through growing uh, by doing that. How can we improve systems through their lifetime? How is this connected to learning? So how can we facilitate learning through growing for example? So how can the body help to learn? Um, so a very simple example is if we learn a new movement, um, I think I mentioned it in the first podcast as well, we are stiffened up so we can reduce the search space for our brain algorithm, so to say, uh, in order to find a solution and then we get looser over time. And you can see that this kind of separation between what happens in the body and what happens in the controller, this changes over time. So maybe in the beginning you're very brain-driven, uh, you have a lot of thinking going on, um, and then through a mechanism, you actually can outsource this optimization uh, onto the body. So at the end, the control is very simple again. And then if you have a new task, it's basically, aha, oh, something interesting happens. Now I have to go back into the brain and do something and then adapt the body again. And this could happen also like if you cut off a leg of a robot, how can it cope with that? Um, so I think it, there's a whole range from theory, to simulation, to building robots, to optimization, to materials, um, that, to learning. There's a whole range of interesting questions that can be asked in, in the context of morphological computation.
0: Yeah, yeah. So maybe I'm to ask you, where's any direction you thought would work out very well, maybe while working in morphological computation, but empirical result proved something wasn't expected, maybe interesting. Maybe in Syria you have this kind of expected result but in empirical work was completely different. Do you have anything think, um, mm-hmm. like that?
1: Yeah, I think um, I think what maybe would yield a lot of um, results would, would working more into understanding how sensing and morphological relation works. So there's a lot of work about locomotion and control but there's not so much work on, on sensing. Because sensing usually it's, it's not just getting an information but also there's the kind of processor afterwards, right, Uh, you filter out noise, you tune in, do frequencies, so you have this kind of signal processing part of that. And I think there's a lot that can be done on the morphological side and this has been so far underexplored. I think this is a very quick way to get really cool results.
0: Yeah. So maybe I don't know if you have any examples in nature, something you see about morphological computation and maybe we don't aware about the soft robotics field. Do you have any kind of maybe creature or maybe in nature you have witnessed in this year? That's something all oh, that's very inspiring.
1: In, there are some examples that, that everyone uses, uh, but maybe not everyone who's listening to the podcast is aware of that. So there's this very famous example that you mentioned before with the, the dead fish. So this is a video from the Lauda Lab. Um, if you look in YouTube, deceased trout, you see it, which is a little video where you see uh, the drought. And I think it has been mentioned in this podcast before by other people, yeah. uh, which is connected with uh, a nylon thread. And then through the flow, um, it actually has this kind of very really nice swimming movement. So that's that's something that I usually show um, to to explain the concept of the importance of the body for for movement. Another one that I usually like is is the aerodium seed which is a seed with a kind of spiral in the back and I think that's really interesting as well because again there's no kind of brain involved no controller and the seed falls to the ground and nothing happens until the conditions yeah. are perfect so when it starts to rain humidity changes which means it unravels this kind of spiral in the back and then it drills mm-hmm. the seed right into the ground. So sensing and actuation is connected directly in the morphology itself. So I think that that's really really cool. And then there are mechanical systems as well, like slinky on a treadmill, for example. Uh, walking ladders—you might have seen that where you have ladders; they are on a slope and they throw a wind and then they start to walk down. Um, but but if you talk to any biologist, uh, I mean that's the way basically. Uh, Biology works. Uh, <laughs> that, that's the way that evolution has found a really good um, use of morphology to make something more energy efficient, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So there are plenty of examples there.
0: That's very important, yeah. So maybe the question here about um, how we can be inclusive for different ideas. Since you highlighted in the community, maybe still not everyone, uh, maybe considering the importance of the morphology. For designs of robots so maybe the question here how we can be intellectually inclusive that everyone maybe welcomes uh, the different idea or different approaches because in reality it's it's super challenging sometimes if you have if you are still junior research and have this new idea sometimes no one will listen to you and uh, in the podcast i there there's many guests to say that about they in their junior uh, uh, research here they they were they have a lot of difficulty that you can deliver the ideas so maybe being, the community being receptive about it, so how do you see this kind of how we can be intellectually inclusive for different ideas in the field
1: I think it's it's crucially important to be intellectually inclusive right I think a, a research field is as strong as its underlying ideas it, it or its acceptance of new ideas right um, and the and I think it's really it's it's always also the next generation to question. The underlying assumptions that are currently in the field, and even if soft robotics is a young field, uh, it already has its underlying assumption. And and I have them as well, right? And it's it's really hard to fight against them. Often we don't know about them. It's we have these blind spots. Mm-hmm. So it's very important to listen to new people coming to the field. So this could be young researchers, um, which which think they are asking stupid questions, but they are not actually. Um, But also people who are not roboticists from outside of the field, because they are asking these questions that are really, really important. Say, why are you doing that like this? And you say, well, everyone is doing it like that. But that's not a good answer, right? You have to really think about that. Is it still a good way to do it? Is there a good reason? That might have been 10 years ago, 20 years ago, but it's not anymore. Now, in order to include more people, um, I think there there has to be a culture of, being open-minded to new ideas Um, I believe looking at soft robotics I I think um, the community is is quite good at that Um, that's my impression Uh, but um, maybe maybe you can tell me different Um, that's fine Um, but we have to make sure we keep this culture right so we have to make sure that we um, have open discussions about that we don't shut down Uh, young researchers if they have questions. Um, um, So I think that's very important and then also we I think communication is very very important you want to make people aware of this exciting field and obviously if you just go out and talk about equations it's really hard to excite people about that unless they're into equations so you have to adapt to your audience right if you go to somebody in a maths department you want to talk about the exciting challenges on the mathematical side there are in soft robotics and on the simulation side on the modeling side right if you talk to somebody in chemistry you want to find these connection points about what they are doing uh with soft robotics and excite them about that um so and th- that's our job and uh, that's a very important job that we really put effort and yeah. time into that
0: yeah I can't agree more with that. I think maybe the question here about, I, I, I hear many stories from students sometimes, they, why you have to do a PhD or maybe what, because I think this is a critical point about the way of thinking. When you say that I, I have to consider some computation, it's a way of the culture of thinking and maybe having maybe a supervisor that can embrace your thoughts and, and help you. And I, I, first of all, I'd like to congratulate you for being director of the Center of Doctorate School in Training and Future Autonomous Robotic System. I hope I say it right. So yeah, I think yeah, if you can tell us, uh, um, how, how, how do you see this process for VG? Because let's be honest, many students sometimes, it's many, many stores struggle with, uh, not the research sometimes, but even with supervisor the mentality, as you say, it's in this day, we have this kind of ego. If you have a new idea, Sometimes you have to be defense about your ideas and your work and, and any kind of new ideas, you maybe feel threatened sometimes. Maybe it's not a bad way, but sometimes you feel threatened at the beginning if you don't have maybe the open mind uh, to accept the new ideas and, and give them uh, enough consideration. and see. So first of all, how, how do you see the process of first of all doing a PhD? Why have to do a PhD? And do you think it is necessary to do intellectual work, you have to do a PhD? And if you so have to do that, how you choose a supervisor? I think that's all of the question we have all the time. If you can tell us how this process ends, because we need listening to you. So if you can tell yeah. us about that, yeah.
1: Yeah, these are really important questions. Um, so first, you don't have to do a PhD. I don't think um, that that is needed in, do, in order to do exciting stuff, right? Also, you don't have to be in academia no. to do really impactful work uh, at all. Um, I think it's um, just to say that. And also, if you after your PhD you don't go into academia, that's fine as well. A lot of people have the feeling that oh, now I've invested all this time in academia, and and now I've wasted it because I go into industry. That's not true at all because you you learn so much more in in a PhD. You you stick through very difficult times, right? Every PhD is difficult, even. In, in non-COVID years, it's really a tough task. You do something by definition that nobody has done before. So you go beyond the edge of knowledge, right? You contribute something completely new. And this is frightening. And um, And it, it doesn't always work. So you have to try different things. You have to be persistent. And these are all uh, very important um, skills that you learn that can be used in any part of your life. Um, so PhD is not important um, at all. Um, but if you decide to do it um the the important part is really to make sure you have um the the right topic for you. I think this is one of the most important parts the right topic, the right supervisor. I think these are that's the order you want to have um, and let me lo- a little bit uh, uh, let me let me talk a little bit more about what what I mean by that. So the right topic doesn't mean it has to fit your skill set. So a lot of people think, okay, I did, for example, computer science. It has to be something with programming. No, it doesn't. It's more important that you're really, really excited about the field. They're really excited about the topic that you, because this helps you to push through these difficult times that will definitely come in this two or three or four years, however long it takes. So make sure you you... Are as excited as possible about that and about the potential and you, you dream and be very ambitious about that. And in order to be able to do that you have to talk to a lot of people, not just talk to one supervisor, talk to different potential supervisors, find out what really excites you, uh, come up with your own ideas, discuss your ideas with, with them as well. Uh, and this comes to the second point, this helps also you, you identify the right supervisor because you want to have somebody who is as excited about your topic as you are, right? You want to have a team of people who say, ah, will you, that, that's the greatest thing and we're going to work together on that. And also there's chemistry is very important, the way you feel, to feel comfortable with with your supervisor. Do you think you can be open with them, right? Do you think there is, um, is, a, is a good gut feeling there? I, I think this is very important for the student and the supervisor on both sides, that you think, okay, yes, that will be a great to work with them and not just because they're academically good uh, or because they've written on the supervisor side a lot of big papers or have a huge group it really has to be uh, that you on a personal level there's some kind of connection. I think this is very very important Um, because it might turn out your supervisor has a huge group uh, is very famous uh, but doesn't have time for you so you can suffer quite a lot in your PhD if that happens for example if you don't have proper supervision. And then, of course, if you you always want during your PhD, make sure you widen your network, right? Uh, You want to talk to different kind of um, researchers. You want to discuss your research work, but also what they are doing. You want to get inspired by people. So a good sign is if you talk to somebody and after that you have like a positive feeling of excitement. So these are the right people to work with because you're going to stick with them for longer, Right. Um, and also, if you want to find a job afterwards in academia, it's good to start networking and find the ones you want to work with, and not just the ones who are offering a job. So I think these are all important points. That there's a lot of between humans going on. It's it's not just research. And I think um, yeah. the best output of of uh, research um, uh, PhDs are the ones who w- where where this really works out. And what you said before that if if you have a supervisor that doesn't really reply to your ideas reach out to other people right other people get excited you are allowed to write papers with other people as well
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i can't agree more with what you said i think it's super super important that it's not only slowly based on the research i think you mentioned the chemistry and being comfortable to open up with your ideas and also network i think is very important so i think that's uh, something i think we need to speak about it more about Applying to school or considering certain lab, I think this this is very important indeed. Yeah. Uh, so maybe I'm curious to skew on this point. After you are doing B.T.D., sometimes students figure out that they have the culture of publish or perish. Sometimes in uh, and I asked Josh Ponger about that, and he said because he I think you have the same ideas about uh, new ideas, and he said you can do both unorthodox ideas and also doing publish uh, frequently. How do you see this culture affecting you? Do you think you are affected by it or you're okay with this kind of publisher pressure? You have to publish constantly and get funding. So there's also a lot of pressure in you. I don't know how you uh, respond to this culture in your work life.
1: Yes. Um, yeah, there's definitely pressure there. Also with respect to promotion, um, you, you have to publish and high impact and get funding as well, which is very important. Um, I think I... Um, maybe regarding publishing I I would agree with Josh it's really I mean you want to work on exciting things right Um, so you want to push for these really exciting and new ideas that might not work out but I think this is a there's a balance here right you want to um, you have kind of portfolio that you want to publish and of course this depends on your research stage um because you want to have some kind of iterative uh, publications that is based on some previous work that you've done, you want to publish some preliminary results maybe in smaller conferences just to get the word out. to be able to go to the conference, so you get an acceptance. Sometimes it's just like strategic to go there to meet more people, um, but you also want to push for the big ones because if you if you just do something which is the next logic step, right? Um, you you go the path of least resistance and over time you have this kind of downward spiral and you always publish in this in the same three journals and you know exactly how the introduction looks like the literature if you it you know exactly how to write it you should push yourself right um you should think about writing papers in a philosophy journal you wanna push uh, and write something in a chemistry journal right when, when if you don't work in chemistry um so it's it's really Making sure that you, yes, think the big picture as well, right? As a PhD, it's not always easy, right? Because you're stuck in this very specific topic, and it's a little bit the role of the supervisor to bully up every once in a while and say, "Okay, what is the big vision here? Where where do you want to be in ten years? In five years, right? Um, What are the next steps to go in this direction?" So it's it's a mixture of both, and of course, if you have you, you can do a lot of things as, as especially as a young, um, let's say if you start as a system professor, right? If you build up your group, um, so the more people you have in your group, the more you will publish automatically almost, right? Because every PhD you have they will publish. Um, a paper a year or more it depends or, or none. but on average, you always have this kind of uh, numbers there and and then you're fine, and then you can think about these really, really big pictures. The problem is a PhD it's a little bit different right um, you have to think a bit more strategic and say okay what do I need to to get a job and I think you mentioned that before uh, to apply for um schools or for, for, for jobs or for yeah, summer schools I think what you should do is you shouldn't start when you're finished with your PhD but you should start in, in the middle of your PhD reaching out to people Start writing proposals with them, for example, uh, coming up with ideas, and and your supervisor can help you with that, and should actually help you with that as mm. well.
0: Yeah, yeah. So in closing, center to have a question. Uh, do do you think ego is sometimes important oh, okay. when you have new ideas that you want to discuss with your peers? Do you think ego sometimes is important?
1: Well, ego. I don't think ego is important. I think it's 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 important. Um, that you, I don't think it is important at all to be honest, I think it could be yeah. quite counterproductive, maybe there's a different facet that you want to be confident about what you're doing, right, this doesn't mean that you change your opinion, but also you don't want to change your opinion every other week, right, yeah. you want to have some consistency in, in what you believe in, and there's some things which are deeper in what you're believing than other things, and you this is based on a lot of discussions that he had with, with other people, right? I think you, just sitting and thinking is not a good way to, to form your opinion. You, you should read, you should talk to people, you should present to other people, you should defend your things and then see, okay, um, well, actually, that was yeah. a good defense or not. Um, so so it's, it's changing over time. So ego can be quite negative, to be honest. Um, but confidence is important.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and if you can just what could be the most important quality you have gained while working academia something you have to maintain in the academic journey
1: um, I think uh, persistence in the sense that if something doesn't work the first time that you keep on doing it and try more things that you don't give up that easily because if you do research, and I think every PhD knows that, right? That not everything works at the first time. Um, which also is a good sign, because if everything you try works at the first time, you're actually shooting way too low. So you you have to fail, and um, failure is is actually information that is needed. Um, and being persistent yeah i think i learned that through that because i failed a lot in my career <laughs> a lot of uh, rejections in publications and fundings and job interviews and um and and almost every time there was some kind of information as a feedback that i could use to improve myself and yeah. get better
0: that's very important yeah yeah sometimes failure is maybe hard experiences it's a great motivator to be successful yeah
1: Yes, it is. And, and if, if you see people who are really successful, they failed a lot, right? They, yeah. Usually you don't talk about that and failing is not fun, even if you failed a lot, it's not fun. <laughs> but it, it's, a, it's an important part of the
0: process. Uh, what was the best advice was given to you and was life-changing?
1: Yes, um, so I'm not sure if I've mentioned it in a lot, last podcast but I, I if not I it's okay if I repeat it I, because I think that was very very impactful for me um, and this was when I was talking to Wolf Pfeiffer um, so it was a boss dog at his lab and um, in one of our last kickoff meetings of a project um, we were hanging out and drinking beer and I asked him looking back because it was close to his retirement um, looking back at the success his amazing access of his lab. Um what was the the key ingredient there? What do you think what was the what was the why was he so successful basically? And what he answered was was really interesting to me. Yeah. He said that um anything that his lab was really famous for, the different kind of publications and works and robots, not one of them came from him, but they were all coming from his students, from PhDs, postdocs, even interns. Um and I've I, I thought that really, really interesting and profound because he really, what he did is he was providing an environment where people could speak up and come forward with their ideas. He uh, needed really crazy ideas. And this is where he can have a lot of impact. And I try to implement that with my group as well.
0: That's really bla- brilliant. Yeah, I think I think he is also, I, I wish we have him in the podcast, but he is, he, yeah, he's just to say that younger generation are more innovative. And I think I, I think I, what you said, I can imagine he was a great supervisor. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have any final words you'd like to say for support the community?
1: Yeah, um, I think I'm, I'm very proud of this community. I'm, I'm happy to be part of that. And I think there's a lot of exciting research going on. We're growing a lot because uh, everyone is doing an amazing work. And so I'm very thankful to be part of this community. And I uh, also would like to thank you, Mao, for doing this amazing podcast. Um, it, it has a lot of impact, um, especially for younger researchers. I think there are a lot of people who really enjoy listening to the different opinions and people in the field. And uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you for that.
0: Thanks so much for your time. As always, it's really thoughtful and enjoyable. I enjoyed your, your ideas and opinions about well your computation. So thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Have a wonderful day.